Welcome to the Politics of Special Forces podcast. In this 10-part limited series, join me, Kevin D. Stringer, and me, Christian Breed, as we examine just what Special Operations Forces, or SAW, does, and how that might need to change as we move into this new era of great power competition. In each episode, we will discuss an issue that relates to this broad objective, interviewing practitioners and scholars who have lived and studied this important capability and ask what needs to change, what should stay the same. We hope that in each episode, we can bridge the gap between soldiers, scholars, and policymakers, bringing informed opinion and ideas to this important discussion. Today, we're joined by Colonel Sarah Dudley, a finance and comptroller officer in the United States Army. She is currently serving as the United States Army Special Operations Command Comptroller. She holds a bachelor's in economics from the United States Military Academy at West Point, a master's of business administration from Harvard University, and a master's of financial integrity from Case Western Reserve Law School. She joins us today to discuss the connection between finance, security, and special operations forces. It is a fascinating discussion on a topic that gets little attention, that of counter-threat finance. And now, our conversation with Colonel Sarah Dudley. Welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm joined today by uh, my co-host, uh, Colonel Kevin Stringer, and uh, a special welcome to uh, Colonel Sarah Dudley, um, who we has agreed to chat with us today about uh, something I think that is, is pretty unique in the world of uh, security studies, and in particular, uh, Special Operations Forces, which is, of course, the focus of our podcast series. Um, so, uh, so, Colonel Dudley, welcome. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to, uh, to talk with us today. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Oh, both both of you gentlemen, I certainly appreciate the the invite and getting the chance to talk to you about this subject. Obviously, um, it it's been on my it's been on my mind on the on the edge of my chair for a while. So um, so much so it's it's now referred to as my side hustle because it's going along in tandem with my my real jobs. So uh, I really appreciate the time and and really look forward to some questions and answers and. And really talking through some of the uh, the nuance in this that I think, like you mentioned, it's been lost on um, reflection for for a good amount of time as we as we focused a lot on uh, addressing kinetic things within the realm of countering violent extremism around the world. So um, great to be here. Right on, man. Thank you so much. So I guess we'll get right into it. You know, uh, our first question is. You know, what is counter threat finance exactly? Uh, and why does it matter for special operations forces in particular? Um, and, and what, in, you know, if we can maybe go a little bit into how does counter threat finance and soft interact and what does that sort of soft contribution look like for, for CTF? Um, you know, is, is this just intelligence or is it, is it broader than that? So that's, that's the first question we'd love to, love to put, put to you, ma'am. Sure, so uh, there's a lot there. Um, We'll, uh, we'll start with the first piece of that, which is, you know, what's counter threat finance exactly? Um, and so when you look at it, and, and this is just in the, in the Department of Defense context, uh, we treat it as it, in the United States um, military as encompassing the ability to deny, disrupt, destroy, and or defeat financial systems and networks that negatively affect US interests in compliance with 
existing authorities and procedures, which really ties specifically to the military. Um, it is broader, as you, as you mentioned, and um, really the authorities that allow for many of those pieces reside outside of a military endeavor um, with our Department of Treasury, with Departments of Commerce, large U.S. government entities have the preponderance of authorities tied to some of these things. However, what we've been working on and, and what, you know, we're trying to flesh out in papers like this and, and, and speaking to you in particular, is that we think there's a twofold change to the way of looking at this. The first being that there is inherently a defensive requirement to better understand and ensure that we can give assurances up to where our own money is going as we um, partake in activities as a Department of Defense around the world. So where are our payments going? Who are we contracting with? How is that affecting the areas uh, in which we're operating? And then second piece is really that that definition is very specifically military. And I think it does require some thought exercise to revisit it as being um, in need of a more modern lens that takes into account some of the things of predatory economics or economic statecraft that are that tend to be marked with potential for a malicious intent by uh, what would can be considered an adversary to most um, of our uh, allies in, in and around the world. So, you know, the military functions in all these locations um, and, and has to deal with the second and third order effects of uh, efforts from adversaries inside of a space where we don't have those specific authorities that I mentioned earlier to do anything in this, in this genre. So um, I do think it's particularly important to soft in that the soft formations within at least our military really traditionally carry the torch for innovative thinking, re reframing how to look at a problem set, developing new capabilities from the ground level up based off of just demand. Like what do we need to help solve this problem? And you know, that bubbles up into the, the broader enterprise. And then historically, our soft formations also have a really close tie to partner force operations. So uh, that revolve around a real deep understanding of regional atmospherics and or specific country level details of where they're partnering and, and what the situation is uh, with respect to that partner force. Um, and I think that uh, in this context really a lot of the economics that we really have sort of glazed over uh, really apply to those partner forces that we're that we're dealing with. What's the the situation that drew us there to to begin with? Why are they reaching out to the United States for military support? So that's one of the reasons why I think uh, CTF is is important, specific to soft forces. But I think ultimately as our broader military looks to struggle more with uh, ways in which to compete internationally in a military context in non-lethal ways, counter threat finance is one of those main items in a toolkit that has been underutilized. Um, and the, the touch points with the local surroundings become critical 
to have a better understanding of financing in areas. And that's the soft network. That's the, the broader apparatus of having basically the, a large sensor system out there just to observe. And the skill sets within our soft formations align really nicely with um, being able to better explain what's happening and or to confirm uh, any sort of financial or economic trends that are occurring uh, within a space at which we're trying to operate. Does that, does that, uh, so I get through most of that? Yeah, man, that was fantastic. Uh, and thanks. So, so as I understand it, you know, I think the, the first part you seem to articulate was that um, CTF really looks at where the money goes that, that, you know, we as, as allies spend. And it also seems to me that it's an in, incredibly interagency oriented. It, it really is a, a full sort of team government, insert government name that you want, you know, whether it's Team Canada, Team USA kind of thing. It's just that sort of approach that's really important. And you also touched on this idea of how would financial uh, vectors be used against us. And it's that point that I kind of want to dig a little deeper on, if you don't mind, ma'am. And um, I want to give this idea of financial resilience. Um, as, I, as I think there's, there seems to be a role there for, for CTF as well. And so can you talk to us a little bit about what you mean by financial resilience? Absolutely. So I just wanted to, to make sure to foot stomp um, and clarify that, you know, what we're proposing now and at what, what we're going after in terms of a way to look at CTF and a broader aperture is, is to include our own money looking at it. That is not the current, that, that is not the way the doctrine is currently written. Uh, CTF to this point has wholly focused on trying to do network analysis and find out where the adversary's money is coming from, the illicit actors, the, um, you know, our adversaries funding, but we've never sort of acknowledged or taken into consideration what our own money in those same spaces is doing or causing. So that's one of the ways at which we're broadening this aperture and, and SOP is driving it because that is such a valuable data set to our own understanding in those specific areas. So really it's soft driving the larger conventional force to look at things in this way and then be able to help the broader army in our, in my case, understand for a sustainment commander what's happening and how to plan for where they think they're going or what they're doing in a certain space that's international in nature. So that is a specific, that is, uh, one of the main factors into that financial resilience piece that you mentioned. The concept that, you know, we're working on in, in financial resilience is that as adversaries are competing in this area that SOCOM calls the gray zone, which is, if you look, if you think of it as a continuum from left to right of peace, like everybody loves everybody and everything is good in the world. We all agree and there are no discontented persons anywhere. Um, and you move right all the way across to, we are shooting nuclear warheads at each other and it's the end of the world is near, uh, conflict, heavy conflict. The gray zone is that area past everybody being happy with each other, but shy of what would be considered conflict or armed conflict, where there's actually, uh, a, uh, a military effort that's occurring between two elements. So that gray zone um, is, is where we're trying to find traction and, and how to um, counter 
what we're saying are adversary efforts within an economic and financial space that we're also participating in. So the financial resilience comes in if we have forces in those areas already. And if we are interested in those same areas, which is highly likely because we're drawn to the same types of places as uh, have loose governance or laws or uh, wiggle room um, that allows for nefarious actors to operate, then we're going to let contracts and we are going to require support because we don't have all of those organic capabilities ourselves. So the financial resilience really is now I have a better understanding of where I'm going. I have already identified where the adversary is invested in that underlying economy. And if I'm going to have to buy this thing anyway, then I ought to pick the strongest company to compete in a normal market system or inside of that economy to provide that location or that community an ability to fight underneath or, or compete with that adversary so that they don't have to do whatever they say. They have a viable other option within, you know, a, a Western nation investment. So, you know, an example, if, if you looked at natural gas in and around Europe, you know, if we're going to have to buy it there anyway, then we, number one, ought to ensure that we're not buying, you know, a shell corporation of an adversary buying, buying natural gas from them. But then secondarily, who is that nation's strongest um, entity that could compete against um, adversarial investment in that same industry inside of that space? So that's really getting after just acknowledging and alerting, tipping and queuing to all of our partners, uh, sort of a white list of potential companies or individual entities that we would want to invest in, really to give those communities a different option than having to go after dollars from somebody that they really just want the money, but inherently possibly don't believe in, in what the, that individual country is selling them. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes that makes perfect sense, ma'am. And it, it really sounds like it's uh, it's a whole new layer that we 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 sort of almost like an overlay you put on top of the map uh, when you when you do your preparation of the battlefield. It's it's fascinating. Sarah, it's great to have you here. You and I have corresponded and talked about counter threat finance over several years now, and I want to pose two questions for you. One goes back to some conversations you've had in a, in a concept you've pioneered this financial preparation of the battlefield. I think most military conventional forces do think about the intelligence preparation of the battlefield, but you're postulating something slightly different. And I think it would be also useful for policymakers to better understand what do you mean and how do you, how do you see that developing in this gray zone or competition space that we're currently in? Yeah. So the, the fiscal preparation of the environment is sort of an uh, is like I said it's a new a new thing um, we've we've built out a model that we are slowly working through country by country and really what it's doing is trying to capture the broad economic variables within a space in a, inside a country so we're doing them country by country um, we look at where their income is coming from, their 
all of the basic markers of an underlying economy. Then, you know, we look into their banking sector of where we're going to try to push money into. We look into primary military suppliers currently. We, we look at their, their currency, their black markets, where they're having challenges with that. If there's counterfeiting, um, informal value transfer systems that are in that area, if there are. And then we really look at the great power competition lens on is there foreign direct investment in those areas that is clear? Um, is it via state-owned enterprises? Is it um, from you know known adversaries? Are there nuances to the way that the investments occurred in there? And really, it is it is done in order to identify risk to sustainment for a ground-owning commander. So that fiscal preparation in the environment at a theater level is matched up with an intelligence preparation in the battlefield. Really to uh, sort of as Christian mentioned, it is absolutely intended to be like the old acetate of layers on top of each other on the old map board. Um, and, and what we're working on really hard right now is sort of to our own payments, does that tell us anything about where we've displayed we have risk to our own formations? Are we heavily invested into certain vendors? Are we completely sending money to one bank in an area? You know, allowing for a risk assessment of our own operations and to inform where we ought to think at a deeper level um, on that fiscal resilience piece, kind of as a force prepares to move into a space or in some areas where we already are operating and we're clearly in a competition layer currently, um, you know, it, it helps inform where we have our own internal risk. Um, and so the fiscal preparations of the environment that we've done so far have, have kind of gone over with fan, like wild fanfare and kind of those moments where commanders go, I didn't even know I should be asking this. And now this makes so much more sense. And if I had only known um, these types of things as we are looking at how we would um, operate in a certain area, um, it's become very valuable. And we're also taking the payments that we do make and we are using you know, the visual tools that we have now to array them geospatially uh, as to where all of the money is going um, to also, like I said, inform any risk that we may not have seen as we're just processing millions of dollars of paperwork and confirming account numbers and banking routing numbers. Because as a uh, financier for the military, we are the last person to press a button to send a payment uh, internationally. So that part in particular is, is another nuance, right? Is it's, it's learning to use the a military skill set in a new and more informed way, which also coincides uh, pretty beautifully with <laughs> the potential for downsizing and finding costs, um, uh, cost efficiencies. And really, it's a built-in force that's adding what we believe is a force, a force multiplier to commanders in the regular army. And then all of that same data really magnifies the potential for additional information that would come from soft forces as they're going into specific regions and specific countries 
and uh, become, like I mentioned, a, the, a very broad sensor system. Well, I'm very intrigued by a, a couple things that you've said. I mean, one, it illustrates again the point you made earlier on about soft being a, a catalyst for innovation. Um, I also quite like the analogy of the overlays. Uh, some of us are a bit old army, but this is an additional overlay like intelligence preparation of the battlefield. The financial preparation gives you an adversary sense, but equally it's a resilience and protective measure for our own force or potentially allied forces. So there's a, a lot of interlinkages there. Um, I think one of the things that I've been pondering in preparation for our podcast today, um, you and I have both been in soft organizations and we've had most of our discussions in terms of counter threat finance directed towards violent extremist organizations, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram. And uh, I think about those conversations, also some of the approaches. And one of the things I'm asking, how will peer adversaries be potentially different? And I'll call them by name, the China and the Russia adversaries. Kind of at a conceptual level, is it the same approach or are there going to be major differences because they're actually states with larger financial apparatus? Yeah, so um, I think the latter. I think they will be much different, but I do believe that's where re-envisioning how to use finance assets and to use this skill set along with the tools that we have becomes even more important, right? So when you look at the terrorism models that had been developed and how and what Treasury had utilized over time, you know, post 9-11 and the declaration that we were going to starve the terrorists of all of their funding uh, that was made from the United States and really the the bolstering of the U.S. Treasury and what it was capable of and the ability to, to, to trace and track and sanction um, through traditional financial institutions uh, in the Al-Qaeda Al model where it was, you know, lots of donors sending money through traditional financial uh, institutions, you know, we got a lot of traction in that regard. But again, not DOD's focus. We were busy getting forces ready to deploy to Afghanistan, and then we were busy getting forces ready to go to Iraq. And so counter threat finance, not in our bailiwick, treasury was all over it. And then, so you had a terrorism model though, that supported the tools that, that those other agencies had. Um, you know, then they developed the, uh, you know, a semi, a semi state model with Lebanese Hezbollah and the ways that in which you are having uh, state actors kind of execute through proxies and, and how that was working. And so that still involved some use of traditional financial institutions where treasury could get a foothold. And, and if given the right information from other players in the system, uh, they could affect um, change in that way. Well, when ISIS came on board, obviously that model flipped uh, on its head. Uh, neither of those models worked. And because they were a territorial funding model, ISIS didn't have any need to use a bank. They didn't have any need to ask for donors outside of an area. They took over the large swaths of, of funding inside of the population. They took money straight out of the banks. Um, they had the full black market capabilities of all of the assets that were in and around Iraq and Syria. So, you know, that's the first time that DOD sort of came back into the picture because 
Now you're dealing with things that are tangible and physical and our definition of counter threat finance came into the forefront like, oh, we do need, we actually need you DOD to destroy, disrupt, you know, defeat in a kinetic way, um, the assets that are there on the ground to implore some of those threat finance in states. Um, so as we move away from those counter VEO models, um, two of which are still able to be covered primarily by, you know, other governmental agencies with Treasury and, and other tool sets. And you look at the military's ability to contribute, you get into this zone with those near peers, and in particular China and Russia, where there is an enhanced skill set that's required that's very specific to financing. You're talking about forensic accountants and, and anti-money laundering specialists and the digital payment platforms that are out in, in, in the works. And those other agencies that have those as their primary skill sets are grossly under um, monetized and undermanned. And when you have a, a military that has a force inside of it that has at least a half of those skill sets already built in, and you can use regular .mlpfp training to enhance what we can bring to the picture, you know, you really can raise the waterline, which is part of the what, what the soft formations are doing is taking a financier like, like myself, layering in some additional specialty training from those other agencies that have those skill sets, and you put me into a node along with those, the military apparatus that has a lot of the intelligence, and all of the complements of the other agency individuals that have the authorities um, to provide that financial SME that isn't necessarily um, uh, able to be produced by the, the agencies that kind of have that skill set. So I think in the, in the near peer state, right, is you need to have that level of expertise in more places than what you need a bigger supply than than what the those organizations can offer right now at least and those entities in particular are very financially driven so you've got you've got financial safe havens offshoring you know shell corporations you've got the real complex side of how they finance themselves that is intricate and it's deep and even with the organizations that have those authorities what's important to a ground owning commander or the military our threshold of dollar value importance is much lower than those other organizations and if we have the bandwidth to go after those things that just they cannot get to because of just their uh the high demand um you know we we as a Department of Defense, if we're in those areas and we have coinciding um, interest, then you know we can go after problem sets that they never would touch just by volume, never being able to get to it. So again, it's really the the network effect of of what's out there in terms of our force and where we actually are in the areas that have high levels of concern. Uh, and our ability to inject financial SMEs into an apparatus that exists just to be able to give it more capability. 
Now, it's interesting, man. It seems to me like it's, uh, and, and I think you, you've, you've alluded to this already, so I don't want to spend too much more time on it, but it seems really like a talent management question when we think about how SOF in particular uh, can, can fully develop this capability. I think you, you, you've explained the solution, which is one of, of secondment and, um, and, and sort of looking for that talent and then adjusting it to the SOF requirements. Um, and I think it's, it, it speaks volumes to the sort of new wave of talent management and institutions that I think we all need to need to adopt. Have I got it right? Is that what you're, what you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, give a little bit of the scale, right? In that in the, in the DOD, the Army Finance and Comptroller community is like a half of 1%. Yet, if and when I brief some of these other agencies and I say, you know, our numbers, if you had 2,000 people that touch money every day thinking in the same way that you do, would that be a benefit? And, you know, all the, all the chins drop, the, the awe, the shock and awe hits the crowd. And inside of the soft community, you know, we, we've got a hundred and give or take 140 uniformed financiers. And that alone is about what is functioning for DOD level CTF at Echelon currently um, in the marketplace. So, you know, training just the soft force finance and comptroller folks in the skill set nearly doubles what's available right now uh, in the way that we're trying to tackle the problem, kind of looking backwards in the mirror. All right. Well, you've been, uh, you've been really generous with your time, uh, ma'am. If, if I may, there's, there's one sort of additional uh, comment slash question I'd like to sort of offer up, which is um, in your discussion on the sort of fiscal preparation of the environment, which I think is absolutely fascinating. One of the things that I think jumps out, and I'd love to get your, your take on this is not only do we you know, build resilience in our own systems, we, we inform risk management techniques, and we of course have that efficiency of just you know, being better with our money, being better stewards of, of, our, of our dollars. It seems like it would also potentially reveal motivations of threat actors. Um, do, you, do you see that as something that, that sort of seems to, to play out in your experience? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it, it is no, it, I sometimes chuckle at myself and and why we think our adversaries think any differently than us at our core requirements, right? So we always say, you know, I, I use that to figure out what a commander's priority is. Where is he there? Where are they spending their money? Um, it's the same. Like, we're no smarter than anybody else in our abilities to, um, you know, understand what's important and, and, where somebody puts their money is important. So I do think that at a minimum, you see uh, the end state that people are getting after. Um, if you can have a much richer appreciation for where they're actually putting their money, either in small or large scale to, to really signal um, what their intent is and or what their future concept is for a, a, an area if we're, we're talking about outside of their own borders. So um, I absolutely think it does that. I, I think it helps us if we get uh, additional modeling up and running and we can understand uh, better markers 
uh, ahead of, of something occurring and or just economic shifts in certain areas being tied to uh, an external actor, I think it, it helps us a lot uh, in all of, the, uh, all of the ways that you mentioned. So it is, I, I'm biased of course, but I do believe if it's done right, that layer of graphic that goes across in acetate is, is uh, very valuable to every commander that would look at it in terms of a military context. And ultimately to a whole government effort towards you know, the end state of the nation uh, and our, our partner, our partner nations. Um, and, and the military just has a lot of the, the backbone right now to help support that as, as the world twists and turns and develops faster than we can keep up with it. So um, agree completely. Sir, I'd like to get one last comment or thought from you. I think you've demonstrated why US soft counter threat finance makes a lot of sense. But you and I both know we have a very large organization compared to allies and partners. And when Christian and I were first talking about some of the topics for our podcast, he was very surprised about CTF and the efforts we're doing in the soft world. What are your thoughts to the allies or anyone, any of them doing it based on your knowledge? And how should they do it, uh, given that probably much smaller as an organization and maybe have different focuses? So I, I think that in terms of the way that kind of all of our allies would, would think of it is, is really at its core level to just look at ways at which they can use their own finance individuals in the same sort of purpose, right? So no need to grow anything new. Um, you, can, you can try to replicate this in a way that's meaningful for each of those formations, regardless of the numbers, right? So uh, I do think that is a, a takeaway that's possible uh, across any of, any of our, our allies. We are very large and, and that's a, a blessing and a curse, right? So um, when we want to change things, we're expensive <laughs> because there's so many. But I think counter threat finance is one of those things that is exceedingly affordable because a lot of it is in digits and it could be, it could be tapped into in partnerships uh, in, in strengthening the relationships between uh, certainly the soft formations around the world um, to really broaden the aperture and, and understanding. And then ultimately in the, in the main soft kind of bailiwick of we don't care who gets credit as long as the adversary isn't doing it anymore. A lot of our partners have additional authorities that we don't have that if, if the, the unity of effort between those countries tips and cues them to things that they can execute within their own um, frameworks and their own authorities, then we all win. Uh, because at the end of the day, taking money out of an adversary's hands means they can't do something uh, that they wanted to do, and it makes them change their calculus, and it makes it more expensive for them because they know that at least one of the ways they were doing business before is has been illuminated, and they can't do it that way. So it delays, makes things more expensive, and I think all of those um, those partners also get the benefit of of putting one more tick on the board for for what they they provided for their country. So 
I don't think our size gives us any inherent advantage. Uh, I think the broader advantage that we currently have, and I, I emphasize currently, is the tie of world trade and marketplaces to the U.S. dollar. Um, so that, you know, ultimately, if we can find something and we're partnered and it has a tie to the U.S. dollar, then, you know, we can apply additional levels of authorities and, and action um, in a way of tossing it to the U.S. Treasury Department uh, and, and our, our government to try to hash out and, and work through um, getting some resolution or, or some, some brick walls put up. Sarah, Kristen and I would both like to thank you for the insights you've provided today on counter threat finance and special operations forces. It's a, it's a unique area, uh, innovative, certainly boundary spanning, given its interagency aspect, its economic dimension. Uh, we won't have time to talk about unusual things like cryptocurrencies, although I know you're an expert on this. That'll be for another time. But I, I, we appreciate your contribution. Uh, to this podcast series, and we hope it benefits both our U.S. force, our Canadian allies, and any other partners who are interested. So I want to thank you for your time today. Absolutely, gentlemen. Thanks again for the, the opportunity to speak and explain sort of the stuff that's uh, taken up the last three years of my life. So I definitely appreciate uh the opportunity to talk about it and, and think through it and and take in all the feedback that you have to really help help us make it better and uh, poke holes in it and and provide uh, ways to improve so really appreciate the time